Imagine the following scene. A scene that you can find in virtually any of the modern detective shows, such as CSI or something like that. One of the main cast asks, Did forensics already get back to you on the sample that they found at the crime scene? Yeah, material found at the crime scene was latex. They also found residues of gunpowder and fluxetine, an antidepressant sold under the brand name Prozac. Did you guys ever wonder how they know these things? Well, let's just say the answer is, rather unsurprisingly, because of chemistry. My name is Johannes Vogel and you're listening to Chemistry in Everyday Life, a podcast where I explain the chemistry that happens all around us in layman's terms. Chemistry is the study of the attributes and changes that substances can undergo, no matter if they're gases, liquids or solids. And believe me when I tell you that this happens everywhere around us at this very moment. So the example from earlier was obviously from forensics, but the techniques that I want to talk with you about today find much more widespread use and I thought it might be quite nice to give a basic rundown of what is done in a chemistry lab to analyze matter. Just to give you an even stronger sense of where chemical analysis is used nowadays, here are some more examples. The levels of microplastics in the oceans have reached a worrying level. How do we know this? Chemical analysis. Soil used for agricultural purposes shows high levels in nitrates. Again, chemical analysis. A pharmaceuticals manufacturer discovers an impurity mixed in with their final medication. How do they know? Well, yeah, then again, chemical analysis. A whole product line of children's toys had to be pulled from the shelves due to the presence of a toxic, volatile organic compound, and that was not washed off correctly during manufacture. Or DDT, an insecticide used especially in the 1940s to kill insect pests, which is attributed with saving millions of lives by killing the insects transmitting typhus, dengue fever and malaria. That same DDT has been shown to accumulate in the bodies of animals, and us alike through the food chain, having catastrophic effects in the long run. How do we know? You guessed it. Chemical analysis. The analysis of mixtures of chemical compounds is crucial to knowing if we achieved our goals or know how a situation is evolving. By the way, just for the sake of clarity, when I say chemical compound in this context, I mean anything. From water over table salt and cow dung all the way to complex alkaloids and medication or or, or the paint on your wall. In a nutshell, chemical analysis is the way we know what we know. And in all cases, there are two steps to the process of finding stuff like this out. First, we need to separate the compounds sufficiently from each other, also called purifying them. And secondly, we run several analyses. This now is the first of a two-part series where I will look into both purification analysis with this episode dedicated to purification techniques. So let's get cracking on this one. First off, 
why do you think we even need to purify compounds before we analyze them? I can think of a couple of reasons, and I'm sure there are more. The most obvious one to me is that for quite a few of the analytical methods, the compound needs to be dissolved in a liquid or it might break the machine. It might block it or something like that. So if you're interested in the amount of contamination in river water from cow dung, not sure why I'm obsessed with cow dung right now. So to analyze this, it's best to get any stray leaves, grass and stones out of the water sample first. Another reason has to do with relative amounts of compounds and complexity of a mixture. Imagine you're trying to hear if a certain musical piece contains a specific instrument. I don't know, like, like a flute, for example. Now imagine you're trying to listen out for the flute while 12 other musical pieces are playing at the same time. And the majority of the others are much louder than the one you want to listen to. Even with a trained ear, that is tough. By removing the other songs, you make it easier to listen for that one instrument. Transferring this imagery now over, you're essentially trying to make it easier to find a specific compound during analysis. If you're looking for a mercury contamination in the parts per billion scale, or PPB, that is how many molecules in a billion molecules of this sample are mercury in this case. So if you're looking for that, you better do your best to remove as much of the other stuff first, so that it does not drown out the signal like a gallon of ketchup on your one grain of pepper on a plate. FYI, parts per billion is a very, very small scale. The last reason I can think of is that you want to have a pure product. Medication is a classic. I bet you guys wouldn't be happy if 1% of the weight of the medication happens to be this slightly poisonous substance. Because it was just impossible to make the medication 100% pure. I mean, but 99% pure is good, right? No. No, it's not. You want all of these 600 milligrams of ibuprofen to be ibuprofen, right? I'm sure there are more reasons. I will be more than happy to hear them in the comment section, by the way, so please feel free to list other reasons there. But let's stop here on the reasons and look at what we can do to purify samples into its constituent compounds or narrow down the mixture to a couple of them. To start off, let's manage some expectations. I'm going to focus this episode on the separation of solids and liquids. It is possible to separate a gas mixture into its constituent parts using techniques called pressure swing adsorption or thermal swing adsorption, which are very clever ways of achieving a gas separation. However, it would require the discussion of a couple of extra concepts that would diverge too much from the original topic, which kind of makes it perfect for a separate episode, actually. So let's look at probably the easiest case. We want to separate a solid from a liquid. Say sand and some leaves from seawater. What would you do? Well, you filter it out. A filter is a barrier that blocks solids from passing through but lets liquids go through unhindered. Depending on what you want to look at, you keep either the solids or the liquid. And then you can throw away the rest. 
I am most aware of using filter paper, which is literally just that. Special paper that does not tear on the first touch of the liquid. A slightly different way of separating out solids from liquids is to let them settle out at the bottom. And then you can skim the liquid from the top. So in the above case, if it is just sand, well, it's no biggie. We just wait until the sand settles and we can go ahead. But there are situations where we have fine solid particles floating in the liquid that never really settle down. Blood would be one such liquid. Well, what can we do there? Science makes use of something called the centrifugal force. It's fancy talk for spinning a liquid in a tube very, very fast. I am sure you've been in a car before when the driver took a turn at a rather rapid speed. You felt being pulled outward, right? So this same force would push the solids to the point farthest away from the spinning axis. So you put, for example, blood into a long, round bottom tube and place the tube into a centrifuge. A centrifuge is effectively a very fast carousel for test tubes. In there, you spin these liquids with fine particles suspended in them at very high speeds. For example, 3000 RPMs or revolutions per minute. And they will then settle at the bottom. In the case of blood tests, you will get either blood plasma or blood serum. By the way, for more context, if you have ever been in one of those fun rides on a fairground that would go all the time in a circle, if this hell machine would go at 3000 RPMs, you would pass by your starting point 50 times every second. So this is how fast these tubes can spin in a centrifuge. So let's return back to our freshly filtered away seawater. We have the suspicion that there may be some organic compounds in there that came from an oil spill some months ago. The best way to separate that from the seawater is by adding a solvent that is not soluble in water. There's a whole range of solvents that would do the trick. Ideally one that you can remove easily afterwards. I used uh, diethyl ether a lot in my research time. Still gives me headaches thinking of that sickly sweet smell. Anyways, you add this solvent, you see that they do not mix and create two layers. The denser liquid, most often water, will be at the bottom. When you have it in a suitable container, you can shake it and let the layers separate again. Now, everything that prefers to stay in water, like salt, stays in there. And other things that prefer to stay in the solvent is in there. And voila, we separated compounds by solubility using something called liquid-liquid extraction. So now we already filtered out solids from liquids. Then we separated the water-soluble stuff from the other stuff. Now it's time to get rid of the solvent. What I mean by that is that liquids have lots of stuff dissolved in it quite often. Other liquids or some solids that dissolve in it. And maybe we want to get to that mix of compounds without all that solvent. How will we do that? Well, effectively, it comes down to evaporating the solvent off. 
Evaporation means that you let the liquid become a gas. The most known form of evaporation, I guess, is when you boil water off. But this works for many different types of solvents, not just water. All you need to do is heat them up to or near the boiling point. Or do you? You could also lower the boiling point. You ever heard the fun fact that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius? That's, uh, let me look for my trusty calculator, that is 212 degrees Fahrenheit. So that temperature, and it makes water boil at sea level, 100 degrees Celsius. But in the mountains, high up there, water boils below 100 degrees Celsius because of low atmospheric pressure. Well, that can be used here too. Attach a vacuum pump to a closed system with a compound mixture dissolved in a solvent in it, and the pump will lower the pressure in the flask and therefore lower the solvent's boiling point. You can then evaporate the solvents off at a much lower temperature and much quicker. You typically rotate it a little bit. That's in a machine called a rotary evaporator. So this is how you remove low boiling solvents. There's one more possibility that I wanted to mention. Sometimes the boiling point of a liquid is quite high. The one for water is really high. Kind of a bummer because it's such a common solvent. But there is a way to do it. Have you guys ever heard of sublimation? Some solids go directly to gas form under the right conditions. Water is one such liquid. Frozen water, ice that is, goes from solid to gas when the temperature is below freezing. That is, below 0 degrees Celsius or below 32 degrees Fahrenheit. And on top of that, the pressure is a fraction of what it normally is. This process is called freeze-drying or lyophilization. I, I practiced that word before I started this, uh, this podcast. It's hard to say, lyophilization. And it is actually used not only in chemical labs, but also, for example, to remove water from ice cream. So that's it. Now we have successfully isolated a mixture of organic compounds. And for analysis, that's usually enough. But if you want to purify one specific material, you have to go a bit further. And there are ways. If what you have is almost completely pure, you just have to remove some impurities. One can do a so-called recrystallization. It's a funky term, but what it really means is you take a suitable solvent, one that dissolves your stuff badly. In the minimum amount of that solvent, it often involves heating it until it dissolves. And then if the right solvent is chosen, as you then leave this oversaturated solution to sit for a bit, what you can observe is the solid crystallizing out. I, I, it becomes a solid again. And it, the best term to say is it crashes out of solution. It has a nice ring to it. And all that while the impurities stay in the solvent. Then you filter the liquid off and you keep the solid. And uh, yet again, voila, there's your pure sample. That would be the elegant way of doing things. Which unfortunately is not always possible. 
The choice of last resort then would be to separate the compounds of the mixture by some kind of property that they have. In all cases, this involves a very long column of some kind of material through which the different compounds of the mixture run at different speeds. So the longer the column, the easier it is to separate. Think of it as a race, and every compound runs at a different speed. Properties can be a lot of different things. Uh, a less suitable one in this case, because we're talking about solids, would be boiling points, because you do that for liquids, and that would be distillation, uh, about which I spoke a couple of episodes ago. But there are also others. There's a whole field of purification referred to as chromatography, that only looks at separating mixtures into its constituent parts by dissolving it in a solvent, and then you literally push it through a, yeah, some kind of gel, uh, gel-like materials that, as they pass through, they slow down the materials that are that are on there, some more than others. Examples that you can use to to push through uh, there are gels that separate out by by size. So um, the bigger something is, the quicker it slips through. Polarity is another one, or yeah, there's, there's loads of stuff. You could antibodies tend to be washed out by the fact that they can bind to some part of that gel. Then you can just wash everything else out, and then you add something to that liquid, and the binding is broken, and it comes out all the way the same. There's a whole myriad of different ways of, of doing these, these columns. In fact, chromatography is vast, very useful, and if I remember correctly, about as boring to do as it is exciting when you have your final compounds in hand. The main problem with it is that it does not scale very well, so you cannot use it effectively when you have several kilograms of matter. But for small analyses, where you just have a small sample of maybe a couple of grams at best, it is quite useful. And then once you've done your chromatography, at the latest then you will hopefully have a completely purified compound in hand. So this was a very short overview of what happens purification-wise in chemistry labs. I did not touch on everything, and I certainly did not go into detail in chromatography, because it is very technical. Um, very interesting, though, but I'm not sure if it's uh, understandable to the layman um, just dropping you in it. I'll, I may have, if there's interest, let me know and I'll, I'll have a deeper look into it. The thing is with purification, it remains one of the big challenges of chemistry to this day, especially on a very large scale, and should not be underestimated. So, you can have the most elegant chemistry out there. If you can't purify the stuff, there's no point to it. So, although this view was heavily tainted by my own experiences, I still hope it was engaging to listen to. This was the first part of my two-part section on how we know that we have the right chemical. Uh, join me next time when we have a look at a couple of common analytical techniques. But until then, if you have comments or ideas for new topics, please leave them on Twitter under Chemistry in Eve 1 or directly to me, send me a mail under chem.podcast at gmail.com or write a comment on the website. And as usual, if, if I was talking too fast 
or or stuttering or whatever um i left the information also in the show notes so and lastly if you guys want to help me out and you like this show go and rate this podcast on the platform of your choice on that podcatcher that you use that would help me out a lot because it drives traffic to my podcast so thanks a lot guys take care and you'll hear me soon take care You've been listening to Chemistry in Everyday Life, a podcast about chemistry that happens all around us, explained in layman's terms. Thank you for listening.